You're listening to the Sticks in the Six podcast. Here are your calls. Andrew Forbes, Peter Barakini, and Alex Hopton. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 71 of Sticks in the Six. I'm your host, Andrew Forbes, here with my co-host, Alex, Hops, Alex Hobson. Again, Alex. I did that again. Alec. Like, uh, Alex. 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 Yeah. You know what I'm going <laughs> to uh, do, Forbes? Just one second here. Keep going. And Peter Barrichini. Um, I, I, I'm going to change his name. I'm figuring you're changing your name there, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, boys. Just uh, capitalizing the X. I'm not changing right. my name. That's right. Rough, rough start, but it's Super Sunday, and I mean, I'm yeah. sure we've all dipped into the drinks a little bit. At least I have. Um, but uh, yeah, boys, another another big week. Uh, lots of hockey to talk about. A little football to start off the show. Uh, but first, Peter, how's it going out your way? Ah, doing good, doing good. Like you said, uh, you know, Super Bowl Sunday. You know, recording right after the game finished, and I'm really happy for Matt Stafford, considering all the you know tough years he went through in Detroit but then again I didn't really have much invested in this game because you know my team New England Patriots were out you know uh not not gonna not gonna sugarcoat it it sucked but hey it is what it is and I was just in it for the halftime show like let's be realistic you know seeing Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg, Mary J. Blige, Kendrick Lamar, 50 Cent making that, you know, surprise appearance. I was not expecting that at all. And then Eminem coming out. It, it was the perfect, you know, halftime show that anybody could have imagined, especially if you were like in 90s or like mid-thousands kids when all these songs were like really popular and all these artists were at the top of their game. It's just absolutely phenomenal. I was getting like a massive nostalgia effect. And yeah, I, I, I absolutely loved it. And also, shout out to Chevrolet for the best commercial of Super Bowl. With the Sopranos, Alabama 3, woke up this morning. To me, watching that growing up as, like, one of my favorite shows, having that song in the background, driving through, like, you know, the Jersey Turnpike, New York, everything like that, and the same scenes from the intro to the show was just perfect. That, to me, was my favorite, my commercial for the Super Bowl, top commercial. Yeah, I mean, without uh, without knowing exactly that uh, 50 Cent was going to be there, when, when he started hanging upside down, I was like, Holy shit! They got a fat fifty cent, uh, uh, you know, joining the show for the for the halftime gig. But no, it was definitely uh, definitely one for you know to look back on and say, yeah. you know, that was that was a pretty incredible show. Um, and before I get to my point of of what I took away from that halftime show, Alex, I'm going to throw it over to you, buddy. Um. You want my take on the halftime show or like what are, what are we going, going this for? week? How's it going? <laughs> oh, okay, okay. I didn't know. Okay, I didn't know if we were straying away from that. I, no. I didn't halftime know, show. I didn't know the if you were the intro. I, I, I didn't know if you were. I didn't know if you were looking for a, a halftime show take or if I was just going to completely go off the rails and take away from your conversation. <laughs> Anyways, well, my week uh, my week was kind of boring, so I just went with the Super Bowl halftime show. Yeah. So. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've had a pretty hectic weekend, if, uh, weekend, weekend, if I'm not going to, if I'm uh, going to be completely honest, but, uh, things have calmed down a little bit and we're, uh, I was able to, I'm grateful. I was able to get back into the building at my internship. I'm doing it at uh 91, seven giant FM and country 89 out here in Welland. Uh, it's pretty cool to get into the building and meet all the hosts and meet all the people that, you know, keep that station going around the clock uh, in person for the first time. Zoom meetings aren't quite the same. A uh, special shout out to the midday announcer over at Giant, uh, KK. She's this uh, 
Uh, she's a living legend down here in Welland. I walked in and introduced myself to her the other day. She told me to go fuck myself. And, uh, that's just, that's how I knew that. That's how I knew that there, it was a tight knit group down there at giant. Never envisioned myself telling like the 50 something year old radio host down there to go fuck herself is the first thing that I say to her, but that's the kind of environment they've got down there at giant. So uh, I, <laughs> I'm glad to be in the building over there. I think it's going to make for a fun little, uh, fun little co-op term for me. That's uh wow. <laughs> Hell of a start. Hell of a start. That's, yeah. the, that's the best way to start it out because you know, you know, you like, know. go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was, I was just going to hop on board. I, I was literally just going to say what you were about to say. Cause I thought you were going to say that what a way to start the pod. And I was going to be like, well, fuck, what a way to start my time at the, at the station there. Like <laughs> works both ways. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and any takeaways from, from what you saw in Super Bowl 57? Um, not, not, not too much. Honestly, this year's, probably the first year that I made a conscious effort to try and get into football a little more. I, uh, I mean, I hop, I, I will admit I hopped on board the, the Jacksonville Jaguars. So things could be better over in my neck of the woods, but I figured, Hey, it's better to jump on a jump on a team that's been struggling with a bright future. And, you know, when they, with, with them drafting Trevor Lawrence, I thought back to the, uh, the 2016, 17, um, Austin Matthews days. And I was thinking, you know what, there's no better time to become a fan than when they're deep shit. Um, but yeah, in terms of the game, didn't really have a horse in the race. I was cheering for Joe Burrow. I wanted, I wanted to see him take home the Super Bowl. I thought that was a pretty cool story. But uh, also glad to see Matt Stafford finally get one after all these years. So uh, yeah, not, not no real complaints on my end. Did you guys think- see the TikTok video of the Maple Leafs giving their Super Bowl predictions? That you just see Jason Spezza just say <laughs> Dallas Cowboys. Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> of course, of course, Spezza would say that. Yeah, no, I, I, I as a I think I like to like abuse myself when it comes to like being fans of certain teams because I'm I'm a Giants fan. So it was, uh, yeah, I know, know, boys, I know. But bro, one of my one of my only football follows on Twitter is a buddy of mine, and he is a Giants fan. And my God, man, he makes he makes being a Leaf fan look like a fucking walk in the park. Oh, it (laughs) honestly, honestly, it's like being a Leaf fan, being a Jays fan. And then you got being a, being a, a Giants, fan. Giants fan as well. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, I was fortunate to see two Super Bowls, um, both coming at the hands of the lowly New England Patriots. Right. Um, but we, we won't get into that for Peter's sake. Yeah. But Tough I, times. I, I do have to say I was happy to see OBJ get, get a Super Bowl. Yeah. Um, not always a very polarizing player. Um, not always a, a favorite in, in New York. Um but uh, man, he got me—he got me a little bit of money to kick off the show with the the first <laughs> touchdown of the game. So I'll take that and a, a little love. Shout out to uh, OBJ and the purple hair. Uh, as for the halftime show, I, as you mentioned, Peter, it took me back. I you know I yeah. grew up listening to hip hop and rap. Like you know, it was country from my dad. So I had the Conway Twitty, the Dolly Parton, all that kind of crazy <laughs> stuff. And then I had like Eminem, Tupac, Biggie, Dre, uh, yeah. Snoop all those guys playing, you know, greatest hits. I had, I had Tupac's greatest hits. That was like my bedtime music. So um, you can imagine what, uh, what that halftime show did for me. But one thing I wanted to take away from it was uh, it was noted prior to the Super Bowl that uh, Eminem wanted to take a knee in, in mm-hmm. uh, respect for uh, Colin Kaepernick and the NFL said no. And he did it anyways. And huge, huge, huge move in Black History Month. He, you know, being able to, uh, to, to kind of, kind of a fuck you to the NFL yeah. and uh, to do what he did. I, I loved it. Um, 
I, I think, you know, all the, all the respect to him. Um, and same thing with Dre and the line where he said, still don't love the police. And he still said it. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, and, and that was kind of like really irritating with me because like, obviously you got to censor out swear words. Right. But a line like that, why do you need to censor it out? Yeah. It's what was going through his mind. It was what he was feeling. That's why he put it, put the pen to paper. What made That's why he said great. it. It's yeah, what made his music great. It's what made exactly. him into who he is. Um, and yeah, no, hell of a hell of a halftime show. I think it's by far one of my favorite halftime shows I've seen since I started watching football. So um, yeah, great game. Um, some money was won on this side, so you know you're not going to hear me complain. Was um, it Drake money though? Because I could have sworn he won like eight hundred fifty thousand dollars. It wasn't Drake money. It was. Oh. I mean, if I had that kind of money to throw down, maybe, <laughs> maybe. But. I was just gonna say, like, I remember hearing that during the game, and I was thinking, imagine what it must be like to be able to just drop million and a half on a sports game, just making just for yeah. fun, just, just making for, that decision just to fuck around. I'm not, You're bored one just night. For I'm shits, just gonna you know? drop half a, a million and a half on a on a game. Just why not? I'm so cheap. I won't even drop a hundo. I'm, I'm sitting here like, you know, let's put a couple like, let's put a like, couple $10 bets in there and ho- hope to hit. Yeah. Forbes, I've literally never dropped more than a $5 bet. So I've got you beat there. <laughs> Granted, uh, we did discuss before the show, my, my, my grandpa-ish way of betting. So yeah. that's about to be expected for what I do. Yeah. Um, anyways, boys, like I said, it was, uh, it was a crazy week. Lots to talk about in the hockey world. Um, I think uh, this this week we'll kick it right off with Leaf Talk as we don't have a guest. Um, so with that said, let's uh, let's jump right into it with uh, a, a contract extension. Joseph Wall, uh, Joey Wall, the guy that uh, you know kind of held his own for a few games at the NHL level this season, three and one with a two seventy six goals against average and nine eleven save percentage and uh, signed to a three-year contract extension, the first year being a two-way deal, the final two being one, one-way deals. Alex, I'm going to throw it to you first. What, do, what are your thoughts on uh, Joseph Wall being re-signed or, or contract extension for the Leafs? Yeah, I mean, I talked to Peter about this this morning, and it's really a win-win for both sides, in my opinion. I mean, you know, you're, you're giving Joseph Wall a guy um, who's – you know, small sample size in the NHL hasn't really gotten too, too many reps, but you're giving him a chance to prove that he can be more than just an AHL goalie. And for the Leafs, I mean, at the absolute worst, you've got a guy that you can trust to come in and be a third goalie or even a fourth goalie down the line. Um, I don't see anything wrong with the contract extension. I think it's a, when you look at it in the grand scheme of things and kind of where the Leafs are at right now, it seems like a pretty minor move. I will say it's the wrong goalie I wanted to see <laughs> uh, signed to that signed to a contract extension. But that being said, I'm not going to take anything away from Joseph Wall. Um, uh, I, I know that you know where he's at in his development for his age might not quite be too too promising. But at the same time, I don't really see it being too much of an issue on the Leafs end. Like you're like I said, you're giving a guy that you drafted a chance to prove himself and say that he can be more than a number three goalie or even or even less than that. So overall, yeah, I, I got no complaints about the about the extension. I think it's a pretty pretty risk free move for both sides here. Yeah, Peter. I mean, I I've been one to be pretty pretty hard on him after even his four games. I said he looked a little shaky in his NHL debut and you know, a little stiff going uh, post to post, but um, your thoughts on, on wall being here for at least the next three years, assuming he doesn't get moved. Well, I'm glad you said wall. Cause in our notes, I had hall extension and I'm just like, <laughs> Oh crap. I hope Peter, Andrew, you, 
you made me do a double take there when I read the notes. I was like, Hall extension. Wait, whoa, 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 hold on. I switched yeah. to mid and I'm like, wait, oh my God. Okay, but yeah. Um, so crisis averted on my end. Andrew, uh, MVP right there. Uh, good job. But, um, plus one, boys. Plus one. Plus one. Uh, over under on mistakes that I'm going to make this episode. We'll, I think we'll, I should we'll see. I think I'm actually Super, Super Bowl bet. I called Alex, Alex. So I'll, I'll take the even right now. <laughs> Oh man. Uh, okay. So getting a bit sidetracked there, but, um, yeah, um, nothing wrong with the extension. I mean, I'm, I'm really happy for him. Um, the way that he came in this season when Peter Morazic went down, um, you know, the surprise start against the Buffalo Sabres and then just running away with it. Um, I think the only blip was the game against the Winnipeg Jets where, you know, it's just a total crap shoot of a game. Um, but yeah, I, I thought he looked fantastic in his starts. Um, obviously, like you said, Andrew, a little bit of jitters, a little bit of nervousness because, hey, first time in the big league, um, especially in the game against the Buffalo Sabres, but he showed a lot of promise. Looked, looked really good at tracking the puck at times. Maybe just uh, overshot on his movements and got out of position and maybe had to make a flailing save. But that's going to come at practice. I think I, over the over this time, he's going to work on his mobility a little bit more, get a little bit square, and work on a stopping stopping goes a little bit. I think that's going to be really key for him. But the main thing is this kind of serves as a precursor as to maybe what can happen to Peter Morazic if they decide to move him in the offseason. Because there were talks, I believe, last week where teams were calling in on Peter Morazic. Um, obviously, Kyle Dubas would not want to do that midseason where you would only have one starter and you would probably bring up Joseph Wall with only four games NHL experience. That's not going to be great. But in the event that maybe they do move Peter Morazic for, I don't know, prospect picks, whatever have you, um, teams want that kind of contract. It's a really good value, maybe not for a backup with the Maple Leafs, but if it frees up space to sign Jack Campbell and maybe eventually give Joseph Wall four years at under $1 million or three years under $1 million, that's still pretty damn good in my view, where you have three years of, of a great contract to work with and maybe even extend it just a little bit up afterwards. So I think they're in a good spot. I think it's great for camp, um, for Joseph Wall. I think it's great for the Leafs. And I think Kyle Dubas did, you know, a fantastic job trying to keep a piece in the fold. Yeah, I was going to say, like, like, as I mentioned, I was pretty hard on him uh, after his debut. Um, even, even through the first four games, like, I wasn't – I'm not convinced yet. Um, that said, I mean, he's 23 years old and that's when you're talking about goalies, it's still so young. I mean, we see a guy like Jack Campbell is a perfect example of this. He's, you know, he's been able to kind of, um, refresh his career, uh, you know, later on in it, closing in on his thirties or, or in his thirties. Right. So, um, you know, it, it, it does allow for a little bit more wiggle room when it, when you're talking about a goaltender, uh, on top of that, I mean, you're not talking about a major, majorly big contract. You're talking about a position where you there is a lot of uncertainty right now for the Leafs. Jack Campbell, you don't really have, you know, an answer as to whether he's going to be here next season. As you mentioned, Peter, um, Peter Morazic's a guy that there's a lot of interest in. Uh, and, and then, you know, down the, down the pipeline a little bit, you talk about Eric Schalgren, who's a, a guy that could possibly be a guy, you know, that this, this team develops and brings up at some point and, and, and allow themselves to see what they have in him as well. But there's a lot of uncertainty when it comes to Leaf goaltending. And that's been, you know, that's been a storyline with this franchise for, for so, so long. 
that, uh, you know, even in the preseason, we were talking about can Jack Campbell be the guy? And, uh, you know, we'll get into that a little bit later. But, um, yeah, I, I don't mind the deal. Um, I think there is still a little uncertainty when it comes to Joseph Wall. But I like the fact that they're going to try and develop their own goaltender um, and see what they have in him, um, considering that, you know, they did pick him uh, 62nd in the 20, uh, 2016 draft. So, um, yeah, I, I don't mind it. But uh, again, we'll see what happens. I'm sure he'll be in the minors next year. I'm sure they're going to give him another year in the AHL and see what he's able to do. Uh, see if he can bring those numbers down a little bit. But it'll be it'll be interesting to see if in those next two years that if he's a guy that maybe they move up into an NHL spot or if he you know maybe he's moved and and can can crack an NHL lineup somewhere else. Um, but yeah, talking about uh, trades and and moving things moving pieces we're we're you know we're closing into the trade deadline we we talk about it week in and week out at this point and one guy that uh there's been a lot of discussion around uh especially from the fourth period is is Travis Dermott um and he's a guy that year after year it seems his name comes up around this time year after year he's a he's a piece that sticks with the Leafs and year after year we question him at certain points during the regular season and of course, last year in the playoffs with his, his massive giveaway that ultimately cost the Leafs uh, against Montreal. So there is a lot of conversation around Travis Dermott. Peter, we've talked extensively about the Leafs' need for, for help on the back end. We've talked extensively about the Leafs' need to, to shore up their, their D going into the playoffs. Travis Dermott seems to be one of those guys that might be an odd man out. We've talked about Muzz and we've talked about, you know, um, Justin Hall. Uh, what are your thoughts on the possibility that Travis Dermott is the guy that they kind of dangle out there for teams to to look at heading into the trade deadline? Well, I mean, I mean, let, let's face it. Um, Sheldon Keith at the beginning of the season said that he needed more from Travis Dermott because let's face it, the last spot was going to be consistently going to Rasmus Sandin this season. No doubt about that. After his play last season and the short stint that he had, he was going to lock down that, that last spot on the third pairing. So because Travis Thurman was able to play the right-hand side at times, he was in contention, contention with Timothy Lilligren. Now this season, or during the um, uh, preseason, Lilligren made a really great case to show that he deserves a spot on the roster. Travis Dermott at times has looked great, and at other times he just looks very weak on the puck, no strength whatsoever, and he gets knocked down easily. At 25 years old right now, I, you're at that point right now where they should be in the prime of their well, in the prime of their career, and they've already established themselves as the as a player, um, top four, uh, bottom pairing, what have you. We still haven't seen any top four upside from Travis Dermott consistently we've seen it time to time but never for like a long stretch and the fact that he's 25 right now um you know 1.5 this season 1.5 the next he's got term i think this is something that the maple leafs can use to their advantage and try and move him because it's just not working out and if you're able to bring in someone else that can have that consistency and stability on the right hand side in the depth role um, whether they're a seventh D or not, it would probably be at a better value than Travis Dermott sitting on the sidelines with 1.5 and even possibly Justin Hall. 
uh, with t- his contract at um, two million. So if you're able to move one or both of them and get a solid top four right hand D, and then either move Hall down and insert player, what have you, um, Scott Mayfield, Colin Miller, wherever. If you're able to move Dermot in a in a small role or in a small deal for a pick or a depth defenseman, I think that's going to be great. If it's something bigger, then he's going to be a key piece no matter what, because they want to try and move on from him. It's just not working out. Alex, I mean, a former second round pick, 34th overall for the Leafs in 2015. He's played 241 regular season games. So we've had enough of a sample size to kind of see what the Leafs have in Travis Dermott. Over that span, he has 51 points, 12 goals, and he has been a little bit of a liability in his own end. So is this a guy that really offers much to the team in terms of the intangibles? Because, I mean, that that would be the only reason that you see a team hold on to this guy. But, I, like, from your standpoint, is is he worth much if the Leafs are able to move him? I, I, I wouldn't say so. And I really hate saying that because Dermot's a guy that you want to see succeed. He's a guy who's – you know, grew up a Leafs fan. Leafs used their second round pick on him in, in, in the draft. That was, you know, some might say it was kind of like the turn of the tide for the Leafs after. I know they drafted Nylander the year before, but 2015 was when the new management group had fully been ushered in. And it was kind of, uh, I, I think we saw a lot of promise coming out of that draft. But my, my issue with Travis Dermott is just that he's so painfully average at everything. Like I just, you, you watch him play and he's got all the tools. I, uh, and I will stay firm to that. He's got all the tools. He can be an effective top four defenseman, I think. We just haven't seen the execution. That's honestly all it comes down to. And, you know, he's he doesn't really produce any offense. Um, he's a good skater. I'll, I'll give him that. But, you know, it doesn't really work in his favor offensively. And like you said, Andrew, he can be a little bit of a liability in his own end. So um, my issue with him mainly is that, like, you've got him in a bottom pairing role. So he's already kind of being sheltered a little bit. And – you know, like I said, he's got the mobility thing going for him, but everything else, it's like, I, I don't really, there's no wow factor to his game. And I don't really feel like anything's going to happen when he's on the ice. And, you know, when he does make mistakes, they don't come too, too often, but when he does make mistakes, they're, they're Jake Gardner bad. Like when you think back to some of the pinching decisions and puck decisions that Jake Gardner made, it, it reminds me of Travis Dur- or Dermot reminds me of him, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And um, so, yeah, I think at this point, you know, he is only, you said he's what, 24 years old at this point, 20, 24, 25, 25, 25 yeah. years old. So I think that, you know, we talked earlier about how goalies are late bloomers all the time. I think after goalies, defensemen are the most likely to be late bloomers after that. Um, so I think there's still hope that Travis Dermott can carve out a solid career as like a, a top six or a top four guy even. But I just fear that as of right now, the Leafs are not in a position to be able to offer him I guess the development curve that he would need to really reach that point, because you look at the left side, you've got Morgan Riley locked in for the next eight years or seven years, whatever it is. You've got Jake Muzzin who, you know, he's an entirely different discussion come the off season in terms of his contract. But as of right now, you got to play him in the top four. And then behind him, you got Rasmus Sandin and, you know, with Timothy Lilligren coming into the lineup and really pushing to carve a full-time spot out himself, it's just as the games go on there, I, I, I just see less and less of a role for Dermot on this team. And, you know, we talk so much about the Leafs and what they could be doing at the deadline. I think everybody can kind of agree now that they need at least one defenseman because heading into the playoffs, um, as much as he wasn't really like a, I mean, aside from that game six giveaway, as much as he wasn't really 
that much of a difference maker in a bad way in that game or, or in that series rather. I just don't necessarily feel comfortable going into the playoffs with Dermot or Hall on the back end. And, you know, I think Dermot's got a little bit more of a, a case to be saved than Hall does. I think you can advertise him as a guy to other teams as, you know, maybe just needs, he needs to play in a market with a little less pressure and, you know, maybe in a little bit worse of a situation where he can, where he can really step up and carve out a good role for himself. But as of right now, I don't think he's going to, I think as, as it stands right now, he is what he is for Toronto. And uh, I think they'd be better off trying to move him. I'm just going to throw some names here. And you know, you know me about wondering if what could have happened if they selected this player at this pick. Here's who they probably could have had. I mean, these two names are probably later in the draft. Uh, Rasmus Anderson went 53rd and Jeremy Lozon went 52nd to Calgary and Boston, respectively. I don't know why I reversed the order, but Rupe Hints went at 49. As I'm, and this is all descending order to when the Maple Leafs are going to pick Travis Dermott. Brandon Carlo went at 37. You want to know who was taken right after I, Travis Dermott? Yeah, I know who was taken right after Travis Dermott. Mm-hmm. I don't want to so, talk about it. Yeah, so I'm not, I'm not going to say anything, but uh, yeah. You know, Those Andrew? Some names that could have been, and they've already carved themselves as top-tier NHL players at this point. Just saying. Yeah, yeah. no, and and it's it's. I mean, it's, it's always Sebastian fun. Aho, by the way. That's the guy that they could have had for anyone. You know, I I feel like as much as I didn't want you to say it, Peter, I feel like we had to get that offer, Chess. I, I just the love Canes the way that you and- just you just shut me down. You're just like, yeah, I know. Move on. Stop. You yeah, know, I know. <laughs> just rip out the heart already. You know, kind of I, I thing. Know. Rip I, off I the band aid. I didn't want there to be any more dancing, but then at the same time, it felt like we just. It, it felt like we we left ourselves hanging right there. Like we had yeah. to get out and say it and come to terms mm-hmm. with it. Yeah. Shout out to the Canes boys at CHW, Dean, uh, Brandon Stanley, and Alex O'Hari. They're they're all beauties. Yeah, I mean, like it's always fun to look back on who we could have had. And and again, Alex, you said it. Like Travis Dermott has all the tools. The the missing piece is the the actual toolbox and and being able to put it all together and and be that kind of defenseman. The problem is he's not going to get top four minutes in Toronto and to develop properly, he's going to need to go up against some of the game's best players. And when he has it to this point, he hasn't shown himself as, as really a go-to defenseman. He's not a playoff guy. And and that's something, again, you, you discussed in your recent piece over at the hockey writers regarding uh, Luke Shen being a possibility for, for Toronto, you know, going into the playoffs, you need that playoff defenseman. And right now, um, Travis Dermott's not that guy. And I think that's, I mean, he's a guy that you can probably get rid of and keep the cap space. I mean, he's got one more year after this, after this season at 1.5 million, you, you maintain a little bit of cap space and you know, you don't, you're not going to, you're not going to ship him off and, and get major pieces in return, but he's a guy that you can move probably a lot easier than say a Justin Hall, who's at a little bit slightly higher of a cap. Right. So um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's realistic to assume that the Toronto Maple Leafs are going to try and move Dermot. Um, what they get in return, I mean, that that'll be that'll be the key. Maybe maybe they're picking up some draft picks, um, and, and gives them an opportunity to move some of their draft picks in the in the trade deadline as well. Uh, there's a lot of moving pieces here, uh, but I, I do think that you know when it when it's all said and done, we won't be seeing Dermot uh, finish out the year with with Toronto. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, like I said, we we need we need to think about this team moving forward and and 
to be a playoff team to get past that first round, you need guys that are going to, you know, be able to play in their own end uh, because we have a lot of puck moving defensemen. And I, I just don't think he's that piece. Um, you kind of mentioned Riley a little bit and, and we haven't always seen like he's, he's like I mentioned, he's, he's a puck moving guy. He's got a lot of offensive upside, but what we haven't seen a lot of from him is that physicality. Uh, he'll throw the odd hit in his own end along the, the end boards, you know, he'll get physically involved sometimes in the corners, but when it comes to kind of standing up for his teammates, I don't know if this new contract is giving him a little kick in the ass in terms of like being that go-to guy for physicality as well, but takes a book out of, or takes a page rather out of uh, Simmons book, takes a book out of Simmons library. Hell let's go that route. <laughs> you can go but, that route. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I mean, two guys that had to stand up for Andre Kasha um, in the past week and one being Simmons, his fight with Brendan Smith in Carolina was just an absolute massacre for Smith. Um, and, and then you have Morgan Riley who goes, goes, uh, goes uh, and protects his, his teammate uh, the following night against, uh, or sorry, a couple nights later against uh, Zadorov. Um, Alex, your takeaways from Riley's, uh, you know, standing up for his teammate, but also the fact that Simmons kind of has that renewed physicality in his game as well. Well, before I get to that, can I just make a point to mention that Andre Kasha, man, what an absolute warrior this guy is. Yeah. He is just like, you know, and I, I, I've gone on my little tangents about Andre, Andre Kasha before about how it's easy to kind of ride guys and get on their cases if, you know, when they can't stay healthy. We, we did it with Joffrey Lupel for years. Guys who just, no matter what, they always seem to get it. They always seem to be getting hurt. And I think it's easy for fans to turn on guys like that. But if you sit down and watch these games and watch Andre Kasha play, I honest to God, don't know how you could ever blame him for being hurt. And, you know, he's been pretty, he's been a bit of a pleasant surprise this year in the sense that, you know, when he has gotten hurt, he's only been out a couple games max. Like there hasn't, there haven't been any big injuries that have kept him out for an extended amount of time, but he's just an absolute warrior. This guy, like Simmons called him a buzzsaw earlier on the season. That is literally what he is. He skates around, he skates around the ice and he just wreaks absolute havoc everywhere. And so I, I think he means a lot to the team in that sense, because, you know, the, his teammates see him as a guy who will go out and put his body and sometimes his life on the line, honestly. Like, it's depending on some of the situations he puts himself in. I mean, he went head-to-head -head with Nikita Zadorov there, Zadorov. And, um, yeah, so I think his teammates see that and they respect his style of play. And it, it made me really happy to see Morgan Riley stand up for him the way that he did. I mean, you're right, Forbes. He's not really a guy that you'd expect to go and throw the body and, um, you know, really – really like create a create a uh, what's the fucking word i'm looking for creates a uh a disaster out there physically that's probably not what i meant to say but anyways you know you know what you know the point i'm trying to get across here um stir yeah the pot i mean a it was bit, right go out there yeah, and stir kind the of pot. That. that's that's what i was getting <laughs> out there. yeah um overall yeah it was great to see him stand up for i mean yeah that was an absolute masterpiece of a tilt from wayne simmons you know i don't think there was a single guy in the building that uh that would have wanted to be brendan smith in that instance because he's you know you go up against the wayne train you gotta have a set of muscles on you and uh not too many guys who would be happy to face him so uh, i'm glad that simmons sort of set the precedent there and you know morgan riley could be the extension talking it could be the fact that he you know he's got an a on his jersey and doesn't want to see his teammate go down but it was great to see him step up for his teammate Peter, we're so used to seeing a guy like Simmons go out there and, you know, 
drop the mitts and, and, and really lay a smack down. But when it comes to a guy like Riley, how much does it kind of boost the team to see a guy like Morgan Riley go after somebody in, de- in defense of another teammate? Yeah, for years, there's been this fine line of like the star players, you know, getting involved physically when, you know, that was supposed to be the enforcer's job. But yeah, well, guess what? The enforcer is kind of a dying breed right now. Everybody needs to pull their own weight, stand up for each other and show that they got each other's backs. And we're seeing that now with Riley. I mean, not to bring Jake Muzzin into the into the picture, but he's more in intimidating physically with the size and his ability to lay a big hit than Morgan Riley. And we're not seeing that mean side that we've seen from Jake Muzzin. And we're starting to see that emerge with Riley at this point. So I think it's great. And we should see, we should see more of this. I don't know why I stuttered there quite a bit, but this is something we need to see from everybody. I mean, whether you're a star defender, um, depth defender fourth fifth sixth guy bottom six top six show some emotion and show that you care for each other because there are too many times even this year where the opposing team is getting up in the goalie's face hits being made little shot afterwards and no and everyone's just walking away and i think maybe i think some i'm hoping that the game against the winnipeg jets may have stirred something with them that say that hey we got to stop feeling sorry for ourselves and ha- stop having to have somebody come in and fight, fight our battles because let's face it, we need to show that we're not going to get pushed around at all and we're not going to be intimidated. And I think we, we've seen that with Simmons from time to time. We're seeing that with Riley. We need to see that from everybody. And I think that those two did a fantastic job this week in standing up for Kasha with late questionable um, hits that, you know, even even if people are going to deem it as clean, even though that Kasha's like, you know, or Zadorov has a size advantage over Kasha and it may not have seemed like a hit to the head, he still hit him in the head, whether the intent was there or not. And I'm going to take that as, you know, a call to say, hey, what the hell are you doing? I'm going to stand up for my guy. You don't like it? Tough. And I'm sorry that, you know, it had to be Riley, but I'm glad that he showed the courage and gumption to do that to like you said stir the pot a bit that's what we want to see we want to see an identity of this team to say hey we're not going to be pushed around anymore and i think riley solidify that worth noting in 617 regular season games morgan riley has 163 penalty minutes this season he's at 22 penalty minutes just six shy of his career high which came back in 2015-16 um, also worth noting, shout out to, uh, shout out to hockeyfight.com. He has one career NHL fight. So it kind of goes to show you, like when it comes to dropping the mitts, he's not going to be your go-to guy. Mm-hmm. But again, that came back in, uh, 2016, November of 2016, when he fought, uh, Alexander Burroughs at center ice, um, against I was the just Vancouver. Gonna, oh, that I was game. just going to ask you who, that- who he fought. Would that yeah. have been November 2016? Would that have been the game when uh, I believe it was uh, Jonas Enroth or Freddie Anderson? I think fought uh, whoever was in net for the Canucks that night, and then Jonas Enroth wasn't came it Ryan the game. Miller? It what was it Ryan Miller? I can't remember I if he was think it was. Or not. I think it may have been Ryan Miller. Yeah, I know Matt Martin was the one stirring the pot because I think he, he took he, on he Miller Troy and took Stetcher. on somebody else. Yeah, because yeah. he, he hit Troy Stetcher, remember? Yeah, and Troy Stetcher's like five foot nine, Miller and Matt Martin's like six four and 
routinely gets the most hits of anybody else in the league. So that was a little bit of a little bit of a lopsided matchup there. Started yeah. some fights. Because okay. I think also Riley threw a hit a- at that point, and I think it just exploded. Yeah. I yeah, no, I think that. I'm yeah, pretty yeah. sure it was an open ice hit that led to the fight. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it just kind of goes to show you that you know this this might be one of the closest knit teams that we've seen in a while. When a guy like you know Andre Kasha, who could come in and and as a free agent and be such a as a such a piece for this team, I mean quickly approaching double digits and goals and uh, you know, has added so much pizzazz to this team. It's, it's nice to see guys like Morgan Riley step outside of their comfort zone and, you know, be a piece physically for this, for this team as well. You know, man, I will, I'll say to add on to that, that it's a mindset that needs to be drilled into the team. And the only way that they make that happen is by leading by example. Mm Mm-hmm. You just got to have one guy, whether it's Wayne Simmons, who I know has done it a couple times this year and last year, um, influenced a guy, influencing a guy like Morgan Riley. I mean, when, when you're seeing guys like Morgan Riley who aren't known for their physicality or their fighting go out there and defend their teammates, I think that does more to invoke that kind of culture into the team than trading for a tough guy would. I think you got to, you got to, you know, you're, your teammates got to lead by example. You got to see your brothers go out there and fight for you. And I think that's truly the only way that it'll really, you know, really drill that mindset in everybody on the team. Like, Hey, we back each other up. No one walks all over us. You know, one guy goes down and the others come in to help. And it's just, um, I, I think that's the most important part about seeing Morgan Riley do that. It's like, he's like, he said, he's a guy who's not known for his physicality or his obviously, or for his fighting. And to see him come in there and put his body on the line and defend his teammate like that, it's uh, you never want to be the guy saying this year feels different or this team feels different. But I think the more we see that, the better I'll feel heading into the playoffs. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and we talk so much about physicality in this team. Um, one guy that was supposed to be that physical presence this year was uh, Nick Ritchie. Uh, obviously, all three of us can agree that, you know, never lived up to that, never lived up to – the contract that he signed with the the, the Leafs um, now getting some time in the AHL and, and likely going to be a candidate to get moved. There's a lot of conversation about the Leafs trying to find a spot for him to land. Um, Alex, do you, anything you wanted to kind of throw in there for Nick Ritchie? Yeah. I mean, it's unfortunate that Richie, I mean, we can't officially say this, I guess, until he's actually out the door, but it's, it's unfortunate that the experiment didn't work out in Toronto because um I think, you know, this is obviously the worst case scenario of what people could have expected out of Nick Ritchie. I think best case scenario, we're hoping for a guy who, you know, can score a bunch of greasy goals in front of the net, who can throw the body and, you know, drop the gloves to his teammates. He's another guy who would do that. He fought Ben. Was it Ben Chirot that he fought in preseason? He fought somebody on the Habs. I can't remember who it was, but either way. Um, sounds about right. You know, he, sorry? No, I was going to say, that sounds about right. Okay. Well, I know that Ben Sherrod fought Wayne Simmons in the season opener last year. I can't remember if it was against Richie as well in preseason, but either way, point is um, it's unfortunate to see that the, the Richie experiment didn't work out because I feel like he could have become a fan favorite. I think fans, you know, including myself all sort of had a soft spot for him just because he's kind of a, he's kind of a dopey, funny guy to really, uh, to, you know, to pay attention to on the ice. And there were a lot of memes about him. So I, I wanted to see him succeed. He was uh he, he, he was a good asset to have, or he should have been, but yeah, it's unfortunate it didn't work out. And uh, having said that, you know, it'll obviously be tough to move his contract, but I think if you look at a team like the Arizona Coyotes, um, 
and it doesn't necessarily have to be the Coyotes. You can look at any team that's in a position where they're not, they know they're not going to be winning and they're focused on getting the, mo- the most out of their assets in turn to uh, elevate their assets value at the trade deadline. You take a team like the Arizona Coyotes, put Nick Ritchie in their top six and let him just do like work, play his game without worrying about the pressure of the Toronto media or the pressure of having to, you know, be an integral part of this team. All it takes is for that guy to heat up. And next thing you know, he's going for a, th- a second round pick at the trade deadline. So um, for a team like Arizona, and I keep, I, the only reason I keep bringing them up is because we know that they're a guarantee to be, you know, trading for guys and trying to get the most out of their, out of their assets. Um you send Nick Ritchie on a team like that, and who knows? I think there's value there. They've got the money to be able to pay him, and they might see they might see themselves involved in a little bit of a project they're trying to get uh, get Ritchie back to where he can be and uh, try and maximize that value. So aside from that, yeah, it's tough to see that it didn't work out in Toronto, but I do believe that they will be able to find a home for him somewhere. Ben Sherratt in the in the preseason preseason as you mentioned uh, again Michael McCarron against Nashville in November as well so not afraid to drop the mitts at all um, again just didn't really work out I mean he was brought in to to add those greasy goals as you mentioned uh, but uh, just you know as soon as you lose confidence in Toronto it's almost like it, it's twice as hard to get it back uh, you've got the media on your back you've got you know, you've got the, the Leafs Nation on your back, and we all know how strongly the Leafs Nation feels about their players. Um, Peter, you see this guy landing somewhere and, and potentially going on a little bit of a run here at the deadline? I can see him landing somewhere. Going on a run? Uh, that That's probably a tall task. I mean... I was trying to be kind here. I was trying to be kind yeah, to Nick Ritchie, okay? <laughs> Let's go. We're not, we're, not, uh, we're not trying to give this guy more of a hard time. Yeah, you're right. I mean, you would love to see him go on a run. Um, I mean, it, it, it's just so hard for offense to come by with him, especially after since he had that season with the Boston Bruins, and that's why there was so much hope and promise that maybe he could replicate that kind of production where he just stands in front of the net. So like Alex said, get the greasy goals because 15 – was his was his career high that year, and you know, twenty six points um, was his third best or fourth best actually. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's difficult because from the very beginning, you notice that he was always a step back and a little bit behind. And when he was trying to be on that top line with Mitch Marner and Austin Matthews, he just didn't have it. And I, I, from the very beginning, I always thought Michael Bunting would get that spot because he has a speed to keep up. Nick Ritchie would be in that depth role, third, fourth line kind of kind of player. But even then on the fourth line, he still seemed to step behind and, you know, see players like Jason Spezza and Wayne Simmons have that extra pep in their step. And they're able to, you know, keep going. And Nick Ritchie is either – still behind them and they make a pass and Nick Ritchie's late to it and no one is there. So I think because this team is built around the speed in hindsight, you would have thought that maybe he would just go directly to the net and just be there. That's going to be his office, but he wasn't playing in that role. And even when they tried to keep him in that spot, it just didn't quite work out where his reaction time was slow on like, on like quick tap-ins or easy plays. And yeah, I, I I honestly think that as a result, they try to give him opportunity after t- opportunity after opportunity, 
and it just didn't quite work out. And maybe there's another team out there that can do a reclamation project similar to what they did with Galchenyuk and Hosang this year. Is there a team out there that's going to take on Nick Ritchie and try and work everything out? Um, I just hope so because, um, you know, despite the fact that he probably went 10th overall in 2014, I think maybe that's kind of weighing on him to be a top 10 pick similar to like what we saw with Tyler Boucher right now, there may be that pressure and it just may not work out and based on expectations. And I think there was a lot of expectations on Richie to be a top 10 player. He isn't. And maybe right now you just got to find that role for him because right now being in the AHL, that's, that's that he's at that point of his career right now where he's got to try and turn it around to get back into the NHL. What's crazy is that he's, almost played 400 NHL games. Um, and he's, I mean, we talk about it like this is the end of his end of the line for him. He's 26 years old. He's only 26 years old. That's still relatively young when you're talking about mm-hmm. an NHL player. That said, we, you looked back on, on the draft uh, a little while back. Nick Ritchie was taken 10th overall by Anaheim. Right after that, Kevin Fiala went to uh, Nashville at 11th. Um, you have Dylan Larkin to Detroit at 15. Travis Sanheim at 17 to Philly. Um, you know, the list The list goes on. David Pasternak went 25th to Boston. Yeah. Okay. Alex Tuck, 18. Robbie Fabry, 21. Josh Kapanen, Hosang, 22. 28. Josh, Josh Hosang, 28. Draft, yeah. um, mm-hmm. You want to go even further into the draft here? And this is, this is what's crazy about looking back at some of these drafts. Elvis Merzlikens was taken later in that draft by Columbus. Okay, they have a history of drafting some incredible goalies. He was taken 76th overall by Columbus. Elias Sorokin, 78th. And guess who went 79 to Tampa Bay? Braden Point. Oh, I was thinking goalies. Braden Point. <laughs> Braden Point. I was trying went to think what lightning goalie 79. was drafted. 79 yeah. third round that's ridiculous mm-hmm. so i mean again just a little fun look back at uh, at that draft Mind and what could have been fun. yeah crazy. is that really fun i don't think that's fun though the least well, took mean, jj picnic oh jesus in the fourth I, oh round. wow that is a name i forgot about i thought you were going to take that in a positive direction be like hey at no. least the least left that draft with kneelander <laughs> you want to no. go one even further they took arena valley at 68 when they could have taken Braden point that's oh. right that's right that hurts even worse yeah. Yeah. that 2014 draft was an absolute wash eh aside, aside, from, aside from kneelander, kneelander yeah uh, who, who are some other names from that draft uh dakota joshua who ironically i think is playing for st louis right now mm-hmm. um Oh, Nolan VC. Oh, and the other VC brother, <laughs> Pierre Engvall. Okay, Engvall from 2014. That's yeah, a good, that's go. a good there pick go. for them. There, there's one or two <laughs> pick, but yeah. As for the rest of that, yeah, it's not pretty. Two out of the six or seven picks that they had, yeah, made the yeah. NHL. But uh, I mean, yeah, just kind of something to look back on. I mean, Richie—he's never going to be a top ten guy. He's never going to be a top ten guy. I mean, I think it's pretty simple. But um, the fact that he's been able to stick around for nearly four hundred games is is pretty telling. Of maybe he's maybe he's a dressing room guy, a guy that can you know bring bring a little bit of the intangibles to the team. And like you guys said, I'm not gonna not gonna dwell on this too much. But like you guys said, maybe you know the Leafs find a way to move him, and and he gets an opportunity somewhere else to to play some top, top six minutes and, and capitalized on, on those opportunities. Yeah. Um, 
let's get into Jack Campbell and the Leafs defense. I mean, we talked about the trade deadline and the Leafs need to add a, a blue liner, but Jack Campbell's just, I don't want to say abysmal. Uh, he's, he's had a rough go in the last eight starts. Um, I think there was only one game where he allowed less than three goals. Uh, just not playing up to Jack Campbell standards. I don't really know if it's a mental aspect. I know we talked about earlier in the year how he can be mentally unstable at times in terms of his confidence. Um, but you're talking about a guy who's who was named to the All-Star game this year, first time ever. Uh, you're talking about a guy who who started the year off on, on one hell of a run, arguably one of the be- best runs that we've seen in recent Leaf memory. Um, but... Peter, what are your thoughts on on Jack Campbell? Is this is this a spot where the Leafs need to go to Peter Mrazek more often, or is this like you know we got to get Jack Campbell back in there, we got to get him rolling again before we get to the playoffs? I mean, I think that was the main point that you know against the game against the New York Rangers, where Keith alluded to that he wanted to get Peter Mrazek more starts mm-hmm. when the calendar turned February, and we're seeing that right now with you know we're seeing him. Um, ever since that game against the New York Rangers, he's already played in five, won four, and lost one, the one being against the Vancouver Canucks, which we're not going to get to because, yeah, that, that should have been a different outcome. But, yeah, it, it's I, – I don't want to say it's too concerning, but it, there is a level of caught of, like, you know, a little uh, some some sort of doubt because this is a guy that went on a massive stretch last year, had some troubles, but then bounced back. Really strong start this season. Had some troubles right now, getting some inconsistency. Can he bounce back? And I think maybe that's the main important thing. He has shown to bounce back, but I my main thing is you look at some of the goals given up, and I'm looking at like you know, especially the game against the Calgary Flames. That was all major, major defensive lapses. And, you know, I, I believe it was the first goal with Andrew Mangiapane after Rasmus Sandin scored. Right after, you see Justin Hall with just a really, really weak poke check, and he's just like light, light, light you know, motion to try and knock the puck off. Nothing. Um, there was another play where William Nylander just was just out of position and didn't even cover his man properly. Um, I think the only goal that you really can't fault Campbell on was Oliver Shillington one where he just blasted it from the point, and even then it deflected it off of Jake Muzzin's stick. But to me, how, I'm, I'm curious to, to see that, yeah, his numbers are bad, but at the same time, is that really attributed to him just being or uh, with poor goaltending? Because maybe out of all those goals that he's given up, he would like to have one or two back. What goalie wouldn't? But most of them have been on the defense. And you even saw against a game against the Vancouver Canucks where Jake Muzzin and Justin Hall, again, you hate to point the blame, but they were on for the first goal where Justin Hall just, you know, goes down trying to block it and there's an open net when he's going down. That's not going to help you when you're taking away the bottom of the ice when he's probably going to shoot high anyways. Then you have Jake Muzzin, just a weak attempt on a – Brock Besser on that power play goal. So even though that Peter Morazic was a net, are these goals against or are these bad numbers attributed to more so Jack Campbell or just the team in front of him that's just very weak? 
And I think that's maybe where we need to decipher that. Yeah, again, want to have a goal or two back, but most of these can't be blamed on Campbell because most of these aren't his fault. I'm going to go and say, look at his look at his season numbers. I mean, over mm-hmm. the last eight games, yeah, the numbers are rough. His season numbers, though, 21-7-3, okay, over 33 games. The Leafs have played, what, just over 40 games. Uh, 239 goals against, a 921 save percentage. The numbers aren't as bad as people are making them out to seem. Okay. Um, he's had a few rough starts here. And, and like you said, a lot of it should be attributed to the poor defensive game in front of him. Um, my question is, is the attention that these last few games bringing, um, the attention that it's going to bring from Leafs nation, from the Toronto media, the questions that we're asking. I mean, we're, we're, we're guilty of it as well. Questioning whether we should be concerned. Is that going to play a role in, pushing his mental game a little bit further over the edge, Alex. I don't think it will, honestly, you know, the Toronto media loves their clickbait headlines and they love, you know, getting people discuss discussing things like this. They love, you know, pulling the whole, the sky's falling card. Right. And Jack Campbell, I think has done enough between last season and between this season up until January to prove that, you know, it wasn't just a Cinderella half-season run. Like, Campbell has proven that he can be a game-changing goalie, I think, at this point. Obviously, sure, you can say that he hasn't done it in the playoffs because of that weak goalie allowed in Game 7. But overall, I think Campbell has established himself as a guy that the Leafs can trust and not a guy that just plays off of flukes, essentially. Um, and, when you know, when you talk about the fact that he's sort of – you know, we talk about how some of the blame can be attributed to the defense in front of him, even though he hasn't played the greatest of, the greatest of hockey. This is what I see out of Jack Campbell. When he was at his best throughout November into December, when he was the Vezina Canada Jack Campbell, he was playing so good that the Leafs literally could have showed up to the rink and taken a 60-minute nap on the ice, and he would have still given him a great chance to win. The difference is, is that now Jack Campbell's not playing great but the he, sorry, Jack Campbell's not playing great. He, he's not playing the horrible, but he's not playing well enough that he's stealing games for the Leafs anymore. And part of that can be attributed to, you know, the fact that the Leafs have had a little couple extra defensive lapses. They've had these games recently where they've taken their foot off the gas pedal, like that little road trip when they were playing St. Louis and Colorado and Vegas. Like they coughed up leads in all those games. So some of it can be attributed to that. And it's not necessarily that Jack Campbell's not playing well anymore. It's just he's not playing well enough to steal them again. And I think when you, when you look at that situation, I think you can call for improvement on both sides. Because, yes, Jack Campbell, you know, the, you're not going to win too many games when your goalie's giving you a save percentage under 900. But at the same time, you're not going to win too many games when you're routinely creating these defensive lapses in front of your goalie. So I think that you got to call for a little bit more from both fronts. And as much as, you know, it's important to get Jack Campbell back into the rhythm at the same time, the Leafs aren't really in a position right now where they should be trying to get either of their goalies going. I think it's just got to be a matter of, listen, if you, you know, if you want to start, you've got to, you've got to outperform your partner. And if you outperform him, you'll get more starts. So I do think that the Leafs, you know, 
it would be better for everybody if Jack Campbell got back into the rhythm that he was in back in November and December. But the Leafs are also not in a position to really stick around and wait for Jack Campbell. If Peter Mrazek starts getting hot, you've got to keep going back to him. If Jack Campbell starts getting hot and outperforming Mrazek, you've got to go back to Campbell. Um, the Leafs have an opportunity to gain some ground on the Florida Panthers and the Tampa Bay Lightning right now. So far, they've dropped two games that they had, two of the games that they had in hand on Florida and Tampa Bay. And as of right now, you don't want that to become a trend. So you can't justify going back to one goalie more than the other just for the purpose of getting him into a rhythm. I think you just got to go with the hot hand at this point. And, uh, you know, if Jack Campbell knows, Jack Campbell should know based on what he was able to accomplish last year and this season that he can be better. And he shouldn't let the media sway him towards, you know, having more of these underwhelming starts and getting into his own head. I think, I think he knows at this point what he's capable of and it'll be a big test to his mental strength to see how he can, how he can bounce back from this little, this little slump that he's in. I'm going to go on a, I'm going to throw out a little hot take here and say that this is best case scenario for the Maple Leafs right now, the way that he's playing it's best case scenario. And the reason I say that is look at the last two games. First of all, the team should have won both those games. I mean, 48 shots plus in both games, um, just out in terms of goaltending. They had their opportunities. They just couldn't put the puck in the net. They, that, that should have been two wins. Mm-hmm. I'm going to talk Jack Campbell for a second here. Remember, he's in a contract year. When it comes to his confidence, those, those players inside that room, they love Jack Campbell. We saw it at the All-Star game with the way that he interacted with, with uh, Austin Matthews. And, and that alone just kind of tells you that, you know, this is a guy who's loved and respected and they want to fight for this guy. Okay, so I'm not even worried about whether his, his mental capacity is going to change throughout the season. I think, you know, he's, he's due for, for a couple of rough games. And, and Alex, you mentioned it. He's not, he's not playing out of his mind. And that's, that's the only difference. He's playing average right now. And the Leafs just happen to not play well in front of him for whatever reason. So when it comes to that, you know, I'm not even worried going into the season. I think what's going to happen, you're going to see both of these goaltenders push each other, try and get the best out of each other. And, and, and really, this is now a competition. This is who's going to be better, who's going to get the ice time. On top of that, go to the contract negotiations. This could be the best case scenario for the Maple Leafs in terms of getting Jack Campbell locked up for a longer deal, you know, after this season's done for a better price. Yes. Because he's having those struggles because they might be able to use these struggles in whatever negotiations they're going to have, whether it be with Campbell and his agent or whether they be with an arbitrator or whatever, whatever you might, you know, see when it comes to the Leafs trying to get Jack Campbell locked up. But this is the best case scenario for them. We, if had he gone on to win a Vesna Trophy this season, had he gone on to, you know, play out of his mind and continue the sub two goals against in the nine forty save percentage, there's no chance in hell the Leafs sign Jack Campbell. Now there's a realistic opportunity for the Leafs to go out there and sign this guy to a three, four, maybe five year contract, and that's the best. That's if you're Leafs Nation right now, that's the way you have to look at it. You have to take the silver lining and say, look, we're going to lose a few games. The fact that Boston's in the in the situation they're in right now, and we'll get to that in a little bit, Toronto's going to make the playoffs. Uh, it's just a matter of who's your starter when you get there. It's going to be Jack Campbell. He's going to play all right, and the team's going to learn to play in front of him. I'm not even worried. 
short-term failure for long-term game at this point. Like, you know, obviously, you know, you can sit here and make all the jokes that Jack Campbell's purposely throwing these games so that he can give the Leafs a little bit of a break in terms of contract extension talks. But, uh, you know, because, of course, Jack Campbell's that kind of guy, right? Conspiracies, man. That's the world we're living in these days. (laughs) Is it ever? Um, (laughs) But, yeah, I mean, (laughs) I think we're (laughs) – I think – as, I think that, that that's a good point as long as Peter Morazic can can kind of carry the weight. And you know what? So far, uh, we've been talking about Peter Morazic and how he's got to start carrying a couple more starts for a couple weeks now. I wrote an article on him. On it, I wrote an article about it a couple weeks ago. And I think now, based on where we are, we've had this first week of February where the schedule's starting to become a little more regular. Um, I think we're actually starting to see that a little more. We're starting to see that Jeff, Peter Morazic is in a little bit of a rhythm now. He's been able to start you know, one game out of every three at least. And I think now it's, you know, he's not, he might not quite be where Jack Campbell was over the, you know, November and December. And I don't mean statistically, but in terms of how much he was playing, but he's definitely at a point now where you can get away. You don't have to really worry about trying to get him back into the rhythm of things. I think he is back in the rhythm. And um, if he can, if he can keep on playing at this pace and give Campbell some time off to find his game again, I think that's best case scenario for everybody. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Um, I, like I said, I think we're going to see a, a Jack Campbell that we saw at the beginning of the year, nearing the end of the season, he's going to be the start in the playoffs. And, and, you know, this is all going to be forgotten about when it, when it all comes, you know, when it's all said and done. But um, speaking of dominating, um, women's hockey, and, and we didn't technically have these in our notes, but I wanted to bring it up because we don't talk enough about women's hockey on this show sometimes. And right now, you know, the Olympics obviously going on, the Canadian women just playing out of their minds. Um, you know, Poulin is just having another incredible tournament. Affiliés uh, F- F- having a great tournament. Uh, Debian and Net is having a uh, great tournament. Um, the The fact that you know, this is even a, a conversation uh, realistically blows my mind. But, and yet the, the dinosaurs that exist in the world of hockey and the world of, of sports media continue to rear their evil heads at the game of women's hockey, the, the growing game, the, the, what we're exactly, they're doing the exact opposite of what we're trying to do and grow the game. Um, and, and most recently wrote uh, Rosie D'Amato, uh, wrote an article about how basically basically questioning whether women's hockey belonged in the Olympics because, you know, Canada and the U S always dominate the, the tournament and it always ends up being, you know, gold, silver for those two. And then one sneaking in for the, uh, for the bronze. But I want to bring up one tweet here that I saw from uh, the hockey news is Matt Larkin. Um, where he kind of touched on the men's side of things and and how you know the Canada and the U.S. used to dominate the men's side of things as well. And he wrote, at the 1924 Olympics, the Canadian men won uh, round robin games by the following scores: 30 to nothing, 22 to nothing, 33 to nothing. The American men scores 19 to nothing, 22 to nothing, 11 to nothing. We didn't cancel the event. We gave the other nations time to get better, and they did. Stay the course with women's hockey. And just from watching the games, I would argue that the women's side of things has already become more competitive. Take away the, the group that has, the, has Canada and the U.S. in it, and the other group is 
way more competitive than anything that we've seen in recent years. Um, I mean, even, even China, the, the Chinese women's team is, is winning, winning multiple games and, and playing Japan's well, team and being, as well. And exactly. And being competitive. Um, like, I think, I, I think I basically got at what I need to say. I think Demano is just a dinosaur in the game and, and not really understanding what we're trying to do here in terms of how you grow a game. You grow a game by, by seeing your failures and, and putting the time and the money and the resources in to develop players in other countries to make it a more competitive game. Um, Alex, I, I'll throw it to you quickly. Do you have anything you wanted to say? I don't like giving people like this airtime, so I'm going to keep what I say pretty brief. But, you know, it's just a textbook example of producing content solely for clicks. And maybe Rosie DeMana won't admit it. Maybe Michael Trakos won't admit it. He didn't write anything, but he tw- he's tweeted a couple of things. He's never had a single good tweet ever. Um, you know, it, it's just a matter, I think, at this point of getting a reaction. And if that's what they wanted to achieve, I don't know why putting your reputation at stake. I don't know if, it, I don't know if it's worth it, but hey, suit yourself, I guess. Because literally all the evidence that supports women hockey and growing, growing, women, growing women's hockey as a sport all the points are home runs. Like, you know, all you have to do is sit down and consider the fact, all those things that you just listed, Andrew, the fact that, you know, by giving lesser countries a chance to play for the world, to play on the world's biggest platform. Sure, Canada and USA are the only dominant countries right now, but what are you accomplishing by taking the sport away altogether, stripping the Canadian and American women from having something to, you know, to pursue, and... Not only that, but, you know, the women from Sweden, Finland, Russia, you've got all these women that you're, you're shattering their dreams for no reason. Like, sure, for the, for the average person in Canada or USA watching the Olympics, yeah, it might get boring seeing Canada and USA there after a while, but what do you think it means to these Finnish and Russian and Swedish girls? The ones that grow up and, you know, they want, they've got dreams too. They want to play on the world's biggest stage. So what, like, what are you gaining taking that away from from these women taking away their dream and this opportunity for them to, 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 to shoot for something like this. It just doesn't make any sense to me. And like, you know, it's not even like there's a big referendum out in the sports world about how, you know, these lesser countries have, are getting their feelings hurt. They love going to the Olympics. Do you think they give a fuck that Canada and USA always win? Do you know how many, do you know how many male sports you could take away from the summer games that Canada's not competitive in? Like, it goes both ways. And I, that, that's why I think it's just, it's honestly just a matter of trying to say stupid controversial shit just to get clicks. I can't, I can't see any other legitimate reason to take away women's hockey from the Olympics. It's just, there, there's no, there's no gain to it. it. Just doesn't make any sense. I want to take you back to the world juniors for a second and, and how competitive Ger- uh, Germany has been for the men's side in recent years. I mean, you talk about a guy like Lucas Reichel. You talk about a guy like Leon Dreisaitl coming through. Um, Mort Sider. Mort Sider. These guys would not get the opportunities that they get had in 1924, you know, um, the Olympic double IHF or whatever you want to call it, gone out and said, you know what? Canada, U.S. always wins. Screw it. We're not. We're going to drop hockey from the global stage. And that's the thing. Global stage, that's where you're going to grow the game. That's where you're going to give these guys an opportunity to see the game, to understand the game, to want to play the game. And I, I agree with you, Alex. I think um, to, to 
to look at it. I mean, this is, this is an experience for these, for these women to go out there and play the game that they love so much against, yeah, better players. But we talked about it with Travis Dermott. How do you develop your game is playing against better players. You become better when you see those better players perform the way that they do. And without that, when you take that, you take women's hockey out of the Olympics, you're, you're ruining, you're ruining it for hundreds of women around the globe that want to play hockey. Um, Peter, any thoughts on Rosie DeMano's whatever it is? I, I won't even call it an article. I don't think it's an article. Shit on a document. Shit on a document. I'm surprised the Toronto Star let that go to print. <laughs> My God. Like, I, yeah, I, I, so I can't believe that, I can't believe whoever it is, the editor, sports editor, editor-in-chief, read the headline and said, you know what? This is a great idea. And then put it behind a paywall. Yeah. And and and, and even Imagine if it wasn't to read that garbage, even if it wasn't behind a paywall, I would not even read it. I saw the headline just based on the tweet, and I'm like, yeah, I'm not even going to read it. It's not even worth my time. And like you said, Alex, it's all for clicks. But I I'm just going to say this: Did Rosie watch the Women's Worlds in August? How Finland came out and gave Canada a really good run? How Switzerland? gave Canada a good run for their money, even though Canada came and stormed their way back. Rose that, is just pissed off. She can't bend down and tie up her own skates. <laughs> I mean, I like, like you said, Alex, and, and well, both of you really, this is something that they dream for. This is something that you want to see. And by them getting more exposure, by putting more money into the system, they're going to be more competitive. It's taking a longer time, but we're seeing everything pay off. And like, you, and like you said, the chi- uh, China's team, Japan this year, uh, I believe even in uh, Pyeongchang as well, I think even the South Korean team, where you're seeing this monumental step go forward, especially for teams and countries that are not in a hockey market. And this is what you want to do. You want to grow the game. Like you said, Alex, you take this away, then they got nothing what's to their shoot future? for. Yeah. They got nothing to shoot for. There's Why no- would you do that? Like, I, it's beyond me, and I'm sorry for that long, awkward pause there. But um, it's giving you guys a, a second to think about it. It, uh, it also goes back to the World Juniors in the comparison of, like you said, teams like Germany, Latvia, Austria, teams that are always going to be at the lower tier at the bottom and always get a chance to be relegated and then work their way back. They strive to be in this market or it, to be on the world stage. And whether you're a 16, 17, 18-year-old kid trying to make it to the NHL or being on the top world stage trying to expand the game and get a professional market in women's hockey, it's the same thing. This is their livelihood. This is their career. This is what they want to do. And to say that you should just ban it all together in general, it's just stupid. It's asinine. Like, I, I, I can't even fathom that where – you know, like, yeah, again, to take an example, Canada won 11 nothing over Sweden. But like you said, compared to the other group where you didn't have Canada, USA, they were competitive against those other teams. And that's how you build momentum. That's how you develop. You put more money into the system. You into those development programs at the 16, 17, 18 level and work on that. That's the only way you could get better. And we're seeing everything start to pay off. And 
I to, to again to say that we should just get rid of it altogether. No, no, because it ain't get, going anywhere. You get to the quarterfinals and anything can happen. You get to the bronze medal game, anything can happen. Mm-hmm. There's still there's still a bronze medal to be won. Even if you even yeah. if you got two teams that are, are majorly dominant, you still have a bronze medal that's there to be won. And I mean, you mentioned Lafia. I mean, think about the guys that wouldn't be in the NHL: Elvis Merzlikens, uh, yeah. Kiv Lennox, uh, the late Kiv Lennox, um, another guy that you know wouldn't have had the opportunity to, to to go after his goal had you know there not been hockey on the global stage. So, yeah, I mean, like Alex said, I don't want to give too much time to this because I think the, the take itself was just purely bullshit to try and get people to read her shit um, because you know, journalism is a dying breed, unfortunately. And, and she works for a newspaper that forces people to pay to get to their articles. And, and then, you know, half the time it's, it's this constructive okay. <laughs> bullshit. That's just, I don't know, wrote out of an opinion, but regardless, um, women's hockey is not going anywhere. Uh, it's going to continue to grow. And I think having it at the Olympics is exactly what you need to do to, to help develop and grow that game. I, I even noticed that a lot of the, top professional women players chimed right in immediately and basically called her out to say that, Hey, what the hell? Like she said something really (laughs) shitty to, I believe it was Shannon Sabatos. I can't remember. Hold on. I'm going to see if I can. Yeah. You probably don't want to do that and talk and bash Shannon Zabados. Zabados. I I, I can't mispronounce that. My bad. (laughs) (laughs) Shannon Zabados. There you go. I will say that she's doing a fantastic job doing the commentary with Kate Burness and I believe it's Megan Mickelson as well mm-hmm. for the mm-hmm. broadcast. Yeah. They're doing a fantastic job. I'm just going to say that. Yeah, no, no, they are. Uh, well, Alex searches for that tweet. No, I got, I got it. He's right got here. it. He's got it. So, <laughs> so Jaina Heffert tweets an article from Ali Fox from the Toronto star. It's called opinion. Women's hockey deserves its place on the Olympic podium. And she tweets it saying, we had to do it. Thank you, at AliFox20. Shannon Sabatos replies replies to it and says, at Artie Mano, this is content, not grasping for straws, trying to create something out of nothing. And Rosie goes, I don't grasp for straws. I leave that to athletes swinging at easy gold. 24 24 years later, there's not even a hint of parody in women's hockey. Somebody has to tell the truth. And if that isn't the most clickbait tweet you've ever seen, I don't know what is. Like, The quote tweets and the ratio. Oh, man. I was just oh, going to say, Rosie, Rosie DiMano rewrote the definition of a Twitter ratio. Like, oh, man. I can't believe she had the audacity to tell Shannon Zabados that, that she was an athlete swinging at easy gold. You're, ta- you're telling a girl who – you just wrote an article saying that everything that she has fought for and everything she has trained for should be scrapped entirely. Worthless. And you're yeah. going to tell – you have the audacity to tell her that she's swinging at easy gold, swinging a no. low-hanging fruit. No. <laughs> okay. No, that's not like, how I've it works. Never seen, I've never seen a journalist so just so out of touch with something like that. It's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. No, it, it, it's – like you said, it's just, it's just shit on a page. So, um, you know, she, I think she knows her time is near, uh, and she's just trying to get her last few words in before she goes off like Ken Campbell and creates her own website just to write more of her own opinion. Um, but anyways, we're going to, we're going to throw it over to some NHL news here um, and, and kind of shit on a few Atlantic teams here. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, we talked last week about how Boston might be the one team that can catch up to the Leafs and knock them out of a playoff position. That might not be the case anymore. 
Um, I don't want to speak too early, but that might not be the case anymore. Tuka Rask retired after 15 seasons in the NHL. Uh, obviously, injuries played a huge role in that. Um, he's a guy that's played 564 games, finished with a 308-165-66 record, uh, 228 career goals against, a 921 save percentage, was top 10 in Vesna voting four times, uh, sorry, five times over his career, including his, uh, his uh, rookie season where he uh, was seventh in Vesna voting, fourth in Calder voting. He won the Vesna in 2013-14. He won the Jennings in 2019-20. And while he didn't win a Stanley Cup, he might go down as one of the best goalies in Boston Bruins history. Alex, you look perplexed. I'm, I'm I, guessing did, it's... Did he, did he not win a cup with the 2011 Bruins with Tim Thomas? He did. He was the backup for that team, no? It, so I'm looking at his hockey reference here because I, I, I agree with you. I thought he was on that Stanley Cup team. He is not listed as part of that Stanley Cup team. His he's, NHL he's playoff... He's on that team. His playoff experience goes from 20, uh, 2009-10 to 2012-13. So, huh. it does show him as a goalie on that team. I mean, fuck me, right? Like, maybe I'm wrong, but <laughs> I'm not trying. I'm not trying to fool you like that, Forbes. I'm just, uh, I'm trying to figure out who that other goalie was, if anything. Because I'm looking at the roster too right now. I'm only seeing two goalies: Tim Thomas and him. So whether he, but. So did he actually qualify for having his name on the cup, though? That would be the well, interesting part. He would have part. had to. If, if, if he was the only goalie aside from Tim Thomas, then, I mean, unless Thomas was the only goalie they had on the bench for that playoff run. Yeah, yeah okay, te- so he didn't play any games. So technically, so, if he played under 46 – sorry, if he played under 41 games in the regular season and didn't play in the, in the Stanley Cup final – he doesn't technically qualify for having his name on the Stanley that Cup. That is why, because he only played in 29 games during the regular yeah. season. And he, so was he, on the, and he was on the playoff roster, but he didn't start a single game. So if you look at it, he might have been on the, on the team and, and they might have petitioned to have his name on the Cup. But according to Hockey Reference, he doesn't actually have a Stanley Cup. Wow. It's so, kind of crazy to think about. I still give him the Stanley Cup. So then I thought he was on that team, whether he played a game or not. So then I'm going to throw the question to you first, Peter. Is he a Hall of Famer? Oh, you're going to do me. You're going to put me on the spot like that, right? Um, Peter Peter just got the Mariano Rivera cutter to swing at. (laughs) I'm going to correct myself right off the hop here. According to NHL.com, he has a Stanley Cup. They're going to to give him the Stanley Cup 2010-2011. So he has a Stanley Cup. Okay, good. Um, I I think he should. Dash I, one, I, by I, the way. Dash one, boys. Dash one. I I think he should get the nod to the Hall of Fame. Um, fantastic career numbers. Nine twenty one save percentage. Two twenty eight goals against average. I mean that in itself is impressive. Um, Vesna winner, Jennings winner, two time All Star. Um. And not only that, he he. I, I'm trying to find where his international record is, and I'm struggling to find that. I'm probably going to go to Wikipedia, and that's probably the wrong thing to do for that. Sorry if I'm 
being a little. He had a bronze medal in the Sochi Games and obviously the World Juniors in 2006 with a bronze medal. I mean, obviously he doesn't have a lot of international experience given the fact that, you know, he's probably mostly in the playoffs, making deep runs with the Boston Bruins. Um, But, you know, he's still an international, he still had success globally. And I, I, I do think that if, if his career wasn't cut short, what it was, he still would have had to go on and had a really strong career. And maybe those numbers would have increased. His play would have developed even more. Um, I I believe it was what his, his hip. Yeah. I had to undergo hip surgery. And obviously as a goaltender, that's, you know, one of the main things that you rely on your hip, your movement, your legs, all of that. I, I, I do think he is a hall of famer. I, I really do. Um, you could argue that he didn't win the Stanley Cup on his own, but in a backup role, fine, whatever. But he set some really great, he, he, I, I mean, he, some personal numbers. They're just really great. And also 52 shutouts too. Um, that in itself is impressive. I, I, I would give him a nod to the Hall of Fame. I would probably put him in there. Yeah. So Alex... Top in games played in Bruins history among goalies. Top among goalies in wins in Bruins history. And second to only Tiny Thompson um, in in shutouts uh, with his 52. Uh, is this a guy that, uh, I mean, obviously a Leaf draft pick, probably one of the worst trades in Leaf history. Um, and hey, uh, Justin Pogge is an Olympian, man. I'm yeah. pretty sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah Justin, Justin Pogge was named the team candidate at the Olympics. He's still playing pro hockey. Leafs win the trade, confirmed. I will not hear anything else about the matter. He is on the taxi squad, though. Uh, taxi squad or not, he's still in the <laughs> um, Anyways, um, in your opinion – sorry, I was just going to say in your opinion. I mean, is he, uh, does he go down as the greatest Bruins goalie of all time? I mean, he's definitely, he definitely makes a case for it. And you know what? When it comes to the Hall of Fame, I'm a pretty staunch defender of players getting in, even if they don't have Stanley Cups. I know we talked about it with Henrik Lundqvist when he retired. Um, you know, it's, it's so much goes into winning a Stanley Cup that, especially for a goalie, like, in my opinion, you just can't take, thing, you can't take other accomplishments away from a guy because he didn't win a Stanley Cup. And, you know, Say what you want about Tuka Rask. He was at the forefront of some annoying, dangerous Bruins teams throughout his tenure as, a, as the Bruins starting goalie. I mean, you know, go back to 2013 when they made the cup final. Go back to 2019 when they made the cup final against the Blues. And the Bruins, you know, they're, they were a fixture most years in the playoffs. I think there may have been one or two seasons when they didn't make it. But... Most of the time, Tuka Rask was a member of the Boston Bruins. They were a good team. And he was... He was their guy in between the pipes. He was their rock. And I would still put him in the Hall of Fame for that. I think he's got Hall of Fame numbers. And I don't think that, you know, the Bruins not winning a cup with him starting any games has to do with him. I think he he had all the accolades. He could have won a Stanley Cup. Uh, while the, why the Bruins weren't able to win one with him as their goalie, I don't know. But I, I don't think he would be the guy that I'd blame for not winning Stanley Cups. I think I don't think it should take anything away from him. Fair enough. Fair enough. And we're going to stick with the Bruins for just a moment here. Um, Brad Marchand now holds an NHL record as the most suspended player of all time 
Uh, <laughs> to me, it was kind of shocking. I mean, I know his history, but I, I knew a lot of the, the uh, supplemental discipline was, a, he usually got fined. Um, that said, I mean, he received six games for his little Jor- Jordan Bennington impersonation. Reverse uh, Bennington. <laughs> Freaks out on the goalie. That's right. When he went around and sucker punched Tristan Jari and then decided to stick his stick up underneath his mask. Um, first off, Alex, your thoughts on, on the actions that took place. But we now know that Marshawn is likely going to appeal the, the suspension. Your thoughts on, on what might happen with this appeal as well? Well, first of all, it's funny how – you know, the second that Marshand is finally winning the entire league over, he goes and does something like that. And then we're just right back to square one. It's like, he's just reminding us, Hey, you know, don't forget where I came from. This is why you're here. Um, I just, you know, I want to know, first of all, what Tristan Jari even said to him, because Tristan Jari does not seem like a guy who's going to go and mouth off at you and really try and get under your skin. So he must've said something very, very, I won't say controversial, but he must've said something to Brad Marshand to warrant that kind of reach that kind of reaction. I don't know. I feel like Tristan Jari's not exactly the type to beak. You know, I'd understand it if it was Jordan Bennington mouthing off at Brad Marchand, but I, I, I can't see Tristan Jari being that guy. It's, it, it's a very weird thought to me. Um, but in terms of the suspension, I mean, I think it was just an instance where, you know, how many times has he been suspended in the past? Like he holds the record right now. We, I, I think I had a similar conversation with a buddy regarding Tom Wilson and his, his suspension for, uh, or was it a, no, his lack of suspension, I should say for um, what he did to Artemi Panarin last year, you know, eventually you got to start making an example of these guys. And if they're trying to get Brad Marchand to stop, you know, to, to stop doing shit like this, then giving him that aggressive six game suspension is probably the, probably a good step in the right direction. Having said that, I don't think it was worth six games. I mean, you know, Tristan Jari wasn't injured on the play. I think it'd be different if, you know, he was really clocked and, you know, he was genuinely hurt. But took a little shove to the mask. You know, you got the stick up there. He wasn't hurt at all. Didn't really move the needle at all. It just made Brad Marchand look like a massive dick. So I just – I don't know if I would have given him six games. I think it was definitely worth a suspension. You know, any other player does that. I think they're probably getting a game or two at least. But six games for that little bit excessive, but at the same time, if you're trying to get Brad Marchand to cut down on doing shit like that, then that's probably the only way you're going to, you're going to accomplish that. Peter, do you have anything to add to that? I mean, I do agree that if you want to send a message to Brad Marchand to how to tell him, you know, knock off with the stupid shit, then yeah, you know, six games is fair. Honestly, I think three for the sucker punch, three for, you know, the high stick into the face. I mean, like, like you said, just when he was winning the league over with his trolls with the Carolina Hurricanes, and what was it? Uh, what did he also say something about the Coyote situation as well? Yeah. I know, it was, I know, it's for sure about yeah, the Hurricanes. He said, he said, he said, well, they something like, oh, they well, they don't sell five thousand tickets. There we go. So yeah, doesn't really make a difference. So, just when he's like getting that funny side back to him, because we've even seen him like do the whole Conor McGregor you know, sachet with the goals and everything like that. Like he is a personality. It's just that when you do the stupid things that you're doing right now, like you got to knock it off. Like, I don't know how many times he's going to get suspended and the league say, Hey Brad, what the hell are you doing? Like, are you going to learn from your mistakes or what? And every single time we think he's learned from his mistakes, he hasn't. 
So I think right now, you again, you want to send a message? Yeah, six games, three for each, because they were both stupid plays. I don't know what he was thinking. And for him to do that or for them to give that kind of a punishment, so be it. Like, I, I'm not even looking at, like, oh, Alex, I, I, I hate to disagree with you, but, like, the fact that, yeah, even though he wasn't injured on the play, it's still a stupid boneheaded decision on his part to, you know, throw a sucker punch and high stick him. I mean, I, I, I think that it was fair. I, I think three, three for each instance. I don't know if that was their decision, but that's the way that I look at it. But, hey, if this is going to tell him to, hey, cut the crap out, so be it. But I don't think it's going to work. I don't, I don't hate disagreeing with either of you. Um, and uh, I think it was exactly what he needed, six games. And I think it, it comes down to the fact that it was a mockery of the game. It was a mockery of the game. What you did, I mean, you went around and you were an absolute fucking joke and you've done it on multiple occasions. This isn't the first occasion. And I think that's where it's coming from. On top of that, he came out and said something similar to you, Alex, where he said like, you know, he it's not like he was injured on the play. Like, I don't think it's worth six games. But isn't that worth... I think that's what we're trying to get away from is not base it on whether that player gets injured or not. The fact that you went up and punched the guy from the side of the head and then decided to take your stick and shove it under his mask. I mean, or attempt to shove it under his mask. I mean, that's, it's just stupid. Like it's, it's just plain stupid. And the the only way, and I've been all over the department of player safety, but the only way you're going to change this, the only way you're going to stop him from licking people and kissing people and whatever else is saying, Hey, Brad, fuck man enough's enough like stop being an idiot you're you can play the game you can be a rat you can play the game and be a rat on the ice you don't have to do the stupid shit aside on the on the side like go out there and and talk shit and 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 stir the pot a little bit but you don't have to you know just become a lunatic at some point because you lost your mind for 50 seconds and the wires crossed like to me there's no way i I agree with peter i don't think it's going to change like Brad Marchand said himself, I'm not going to change anything. I don't want to – I'm not going to be any different. So, I mean, I, I've, to me, next time seven games, next time eight games, keep keep giving it to him until he finally – they did the same thing with Rafi Torres. Rafi Torres never learned his lesson that he can't go around and just headhunt. And finally he got a 50-game suspension. That was like the end of it. Like, see you later, Rafi Torres, right? Like, I'm not saying I want to see Brad Marchand out of the league. I think he's great for the league. I'm saying – he needs to Cut learn the stupid stuff out. Yeah. Like there, there's a line you can teeter that line without being a fucking idiot. And he was a fucking idiot. The game in that game, he was a fucking idiot. Yeah. I, I guess, you know what? I, I think part of it for me also is just the fact that George Peros and the department of player safety have let Brad Marchand get away with so much worse shit over the years that when it comes back to mm-hmm. a, yeah. you know, a little shove in the face and the little like chop at him with the stick, uh, yes, you're you're right in the sense that the, we do need to get away from that because while it didn't hurt Jari on the play, in this instance, you know, you can't say the same for every time that happens in the future. You could have a you could have a time when a guy takes a hit the wrong way, and you know it it, it genuinely ends up hurting him. It's just watching him get a six game suspension for that when in the past, you know, the amount of fucking slew foots that he's thrown and the amount of dirty dirty plays that he's made in the past and all of a sudden you're giving him a six game suspension for that. I think that's the part that, that, that I was really struggling with when it came to assessing how much he should have gotten for that. But you do make a good point that he, you know, we are trying to get away from this and we're trying to move on and, and create a zero tolerance policy for, for, for shit like that. But um, for Brad, for Brad Marchand, I, 
I, I guess, yeah, it was, it was right to give him that amount of games. It's just, I feel like if anybody else does that, you're not giving him six games for it. No, That's just absolutely. my personal opinion. So, I mean, I do understand where you guys are coming from though. It's, you know, get that shit out of the game. You don't want, you don't want cheap shots like that to become part of the norm. And the only way you really treat, uh, you, the only way you truly, you know, remove stuff like that from the game is by setting an example. And, you know, Brad Marchand has to be made an example of here, then, then, that, then that's great because there's no better Canada to be the, be the poster boy for something like that. You should yeah. really take notes from Michael Bunting on how to be a rat. Because that, that's just a perfect example of how to get under the opponent's skin without crossing the line or taking a stupid penalty, getting a suspension or anything like that. And even so, I think it was um, the, game against, the game against the Carolina Hurricanes where I think someone dove and you hear it loud and clear. And, I, and you know, TikTok Tomar posts like GIFs of everything or even videos and clips from the game. And you heard them loud and clear. Nice effing dive loud and clear throughout the whole entire rink while, while Chris Cuthbert is calling the game. And I'm just like, man, that isn't that, 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 that is, that is the next level stuff from Michael Bunting right there. Yeah. I, I, like I said, I think it's just getting ahead of it, right? Like you mentioned Alex, it, no, nobody got hurt on the play, but next time, what if, what if the stick is it's on a player rather than a goalie and the stick slips up and hits them in the eye. And we, all of a sudden we're talking about Brian Berard 2.0. Oh, um, you know, it, was... it's, it's just, they're, they're trying to get away from this shit. And I think because of his history, I think anybody else you're talking about a game, maybe even a yeah. fine. Um, but I, I, I just think because it was Brad Marshawn and, and some of the shit he's pulled, I mean, at times he's been a bit of an embarrassment to the game, oh, and, yeah. and that's that's what that's what the six games is. But I do think it's going to get reduced. I think you'll see it reduced to four. Um, but yeah, I I don't know. I don't know. It is what it I is. I guess yeah. You know, I I was, I, I think we are kind of trying to make the same point in the end here because I I was mostly when I was saying it shouldn't have been a six game suspension. I was mostly commenting on the play itself, mm-hmm. and I feel like if mm-hmm. anybody other than Brad Marchand does that, I I, I feel like. I don't want to say a game or two is enough, but I feel like Brad Marchand is cut from a very small cloth of players in the NHL who would do something like that more than once. And, you know, I, I maybe that's where my take was coming from. You know, you look at someone else, say, fuck, if Pierre Engvall did that. I mean, not, it doesn't seem like something he'd ever do, but if you give him a game or two for that, I feel like he learns his lesson. And maybe that's why I was saying it's not really worth a six-game suspension. But you are right in saying that for Brad Marchand, I agree with you. It, it, it does have to be a big suspension like that because you're not going to stop him from doing this any other way. So we saw some other changes around the league this week uh, with Dave Tibbet out in Edmonton and Dominic Ducharme gone in Montreal, Martin St. Louis stepping in for the Canadiens and maybe, maybe one of the most interesting hires uh, in terms of coaching in the last little while. Um, Peter, your thoughts on the Ducharme and Tibbet uh, firings and uh, Martin St. Louis coming in? Uh, I'm going to start off with Edmonton just to get this out of the way. Um, I, I don't blame Tippett one bit. I think this is all on Kenny Holland with the moves that he made in the offseason, bringing in, you know, uh, Duncan Keith, bringing in Cody Cece. But he got Evander Kane. <laughs> their savior, their savior. Has Evander Kane done anything to move the needle for them? <laughs> Not really, because they're still a mess defensively, and their goaltending situation is still 
a major question mark. And that's why this isn't on Tippett. He's given the team that was given to him by Kenny Holland with the offseason signings. And I feel, and on top of Dreisaitl McDavid, I feel bad for Zach Hyman because he's now in the middle of that right now when maybe, you know, he could have been in a better situation if he signed in Toronto. Again, his choice, his decision, totally respect that. But it just, what if, if he would have stayed in Toronto kind of thing. As for Dominic Ducharme, again, different situation compared to uh, Edmonton. High expectations. You expected some with Montreal, given the fact that they went to the Stanley Cup, but you don't have Carey Price. You don't have Shea Weber. Two essential key pieces from that team. Injuries galore. No consistency whatsoever. You expected Cole Caulfield to take a major step forward. And I think bringing in um, Martin Saint-Louis brings another breath of fresh air to the organization. You saw how a former player in Rod Brindamore, granted, you know, two different um, eras, kind of, so to speak. You saw how Rod Brindamore changed the system, not necessarily changed the system, but brought a new identity and a new mentality and new way of coaching with the Carolina Hurricanes. And now maybe Martin Saint-Louis could do that because apparently, um, I believe Cole Caulfield scored twice. Two games, two games in a row. Two games in a row. Yeah. And right now, I think you're starting to see that effect and that dynamic that Martin Martin Saint-Louis has with both the mentality, the way his philosophy and the way that he's going to create a new system and possibly get into the players and be and try to see what's what. And I think you're already starting to see that with Cole Caulfield. So that's my take on the two. And I really think that, you know what, I, I, if you want to have somebody as a coach, why not learn from one of the best in Martin Saint-Louis? That, that, that's just where I'm at. That's just my thoughts. And I, I, I'm happy for that one. Alex, you said something about Evander Kane and, and, you know, pulling the needle for, uh, for the Edmonton Oilers. I mean, from what I remember, I don't think he had any needles. I think he, he faked his, uh, pass, his vaccine passport to get into Canada. So I set you up um, for that one. Uh, volley and a spike, baby. Volley and a spike. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, no, I, um, the the Tippett one, I'm kind of on the same page, but I, I my question there is how much more is McDavid going to put up with? I think somebody oh, tweeted that, somebody tweeted that this is Nugent Hopkins' twelfth coach uh, in his short career with the oh, Edmonton Jesus. Oilers. I is think Nugent Hopkins a coach killer. <laughs> Next article. Next article. Yeah. No, I, I, <laughs> he just said Mark Spector's next article right there. Yeah. Um, well, did, you, did you see that he had to pull uh, Spector off to the side and be like, hey, Specs, can I have a word with you? Yeah, I wonder what that was about. Oh. It, it's just getting ugly for him. And if I'm him and Dreisaitl, I'm, I'm, at the end of this contract, I'm looking elsewhere. Like, this yeah. is just a total mess. I think you have I'm probably to. Asking, I'm probably asking why my team's two biggest offseason acquisitions were Mike Smith on a multi-year deal and Duncan Keith. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. I, you know, if you're a Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl, like, I understand that, you know, you're the two faces of the franchise and you're going to have to take a lot of the blame if the team's not doing well. But at some point, and I know they'd never do this, but at some point you just got to gotta question the team that you've been blessed with, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. It, it has to be the team because what else can you decide or think about when you have two, the top two of the top three NHL scores with sixty four and sixty three points? What more can they do? 
I can get some defense in a goaltender that's actually going to be an asset. Um, oh, oh I, obviously like I is, know is that, but Edmonton I'm just saying media... in, terms of, in terms of Leon and McDavid, like, yeah, they're the leaders, but again, that, that combined is 128 points between the two, if my math is right. Can you, can you have a player GM, like uh, 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 Connor I, McDavid, go out there and, you know? I was, I was literally I just going to see... say, is Mark Spector going to come out and expect Connor McDavid to, like, to, to make the trade himself? Like, is yeah, he expecting, I mean, is he expecting McDavid and Dreisaitl to go and overthrow Edmonton Oilers in management and take over the job themselves? That's, team? That said, let's not forget that McDavid uh, was okay with bringing in Evander Kane. So maybe not the right guy for the job. Maybe we should look yeah. to Duncan Keith instead. I will say, didn't LeBron James at one point, Tyron Lou was like drawing up a play and McDa- uh, LeBron was just like, no, we're, we're not doing that. We're doing this. And he was the one taking over the coaching reins at one point. I think it was, it was a few years back. I remember that so well because I was watching. I'm like, yo, did he just trash his like game plan and say, hey, no, we're doing this? And it ended up being the right play. LeBron James has basically dictated his entire career. Um, <laughs> That's true, yeah. to Every team that he's on. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he told Chris Bosh to retire. Uh, oh. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't know, but I'm just speculating here. Um, but no, Edmonton's in shambles. Uh, the fact that Tibbet was the, the scapegoat here, um, and, and to Zach Hyman, I mean, you kind of live in, and die by the sword. You, you wanted the money, you got the money, you got the, you got the contract. And at the end of the day, you went to a team that hasn't had the success that they're expected to have with two guys that are in, in their prime. Uh, and, and I, I think it does fall on Ken Holland, but I think it falls on the organization as a whole because they haven't done the job that they need to do to, to really support those guys. When it comes to Montreal, um, I mean, I think the only reason Ducharme got 45 games to start this year was because they went to the Stanley Cup final, and I don't think you give that credit to, to Dominic Ducharme. I don't think he had – really anything to do with them making the Stanley cup final uh, last season. I think Carey price no. stood on his head yeah. and had an absolutely unreal run. I think Shea Weber's veteran leadership was the absolute dominance in that, in that dress room to, to create an atmosphere where those players could go out and do what they did. And I think Brendan Gallagher is one of the more underrated rats in the league um, when it comes to what he's able to bring to the ice. And those guys did exactly what they needed to do to get to where they were. Dominic Ducharme did nothing. And he got 45 games extra because of it. He got a contract because of it. And I mean, to bring in a guy like Martin St. Louis, who said, look, I just want players to go out and play. I don't want a system. Uh, I want them to make reads. And that's what it's all about. Um, I, I think you're seeing that pay dividends right now. And um, on top of that, if anybody saw the tweet of his, his calves behind, behind the bench uh, or his, not even his calves is his, thighs like fuck yeah yeah, it was just disgusting disgusting absolutely disgusting (laughs) in a in a great way so alex i I don't know if you have anything you want to add on those coaching coaching changes Uh, fuck i mean or is the topic just marty st louis quads right now because we can sit here and talk about that for the next half hour Uh, i like in love in love what's the secret (laughs) i'd love to know what the secret is just uh anyways you know I hate to I hate to give the Cavs credit because you know we're you know you know you know where we are you know the logo on the front you know the city in our in our in our name, um, but at the same time credit where credits due this is a good hiring for the Habs. I think at the very least for the rest of the year, 
there just comes a certain point with teams when, you know, the, the, some teams get so bad to a point when it's like they're losing, but it, you're not just you're not just ragging on them because they're losing. You're ragging on them because of how they're losing. And I think Edmonton and Montreal were in a similar position where, you know, they just look defeated in every, in every, in every definition of the word. Like they, they, they never looked like they were giving a shit. They they were just getting walked all over, you know, different, different issues, different situations. But I think both of them kind of reached the point where it was like, okay, we got to make a coaching change just so we can get out of this rut and start playing with pride. And, you know, it, it, uh, fuck, fuck. I look back to the six game losing streak, the Leafs were on before Mike Babcock was fired. And I know the Leafs were never losing as badly as the Oilers are this season and as badly as the Habs have been this season, but it's the same sort of thing. You know, a team just gets to a certain point. The coach t- takes them as far as they can. And when shit goes stale, all you, the only option you really have is to fire the coach, bring in a new voice. And I think that's especially what Montreal needed um, with Marty St. Louis. And, you know, it, it's funny because you're, you're talking about a guy who's never coached higher than literally, literally fucking peewee triple a. So you, you take a guy who's, you know, he's been coaching his son's teams and he's, he, you put him into an NHL job. And I mean, he, it already sounds like he's got the system figured out. He knows how he, he knows he's got a game plan out to, uh, make Cole Caulfield succeed after a rough start to his season. And I see it as a very risk-free move because, you know, the Habs, I think they know, the players know, the fans know, everybody around the Habs knows that they're not going anywhere this year. So by bringing in Marty St. Louis, at the very, at the at worst, you've got a guy who's coming in to fill the gaps, an NHL legend that the players are going to want to play for and We'll, we'll, we'll want to spend time with. And if it doesn't work out, then you let him go when you look for a proper head coach to start next season. Best case scenario, you pick a guy out of thin air who, you know, he's, he's French. He knows the organization. He's kind of, he, he's trying to give them a little bit better of an opportunity and a little bit better of a culture around the team. One that maybe they haven't used in the past couple of years and absolute work, like best case scenario, Marty St. Louis, a gem that they picked out of thin air. And so it's going to be interesting to see how he handles the rest of the season. Because I mean, if you start seeing guys like Cole Caulfield and Nick Suzuki start to ramp up their production under, under Marty St. Louis, I think there's a legitimate case to be made to keep him as head coach beyond this year. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And uh, you know, he's got that winning mentality as well. He's been, he's been there. He knows what it takes to win in this league. And uh, I I do agree. I I don't like giving the Habs a lot of credit, but uh, you got to give credit where credit's due the hiring of St. Louis could prove to be quite, quite an interesting hire when we look back on it, uh, you know, at the end of this season. Um, Boys, that's kind of the end of this show here. Um, The Leafs have three games this, this week uh, against some stiff competition. They take on the Kraken uh, tomorrow, uh, which is Monday. Then they've got the, uh, the, uh, they've got the Penguins and the Blues later on this week. So a lot of stiff competition. We'll have a lot to talk about next week on the show. Before we close it out, anything you guys want to throw out there for our listeners? Um, please go read my piece about bringing Luke Shen back to Toronto. <laughs> that one hasn't really been hasn't really been getting the traction I've been hoping for. So uh, I'm going to keep sharing it this week and keep drilling the idea into Leafs Nation's heads because I think he could be a good acquisition for them as we get closer to the deadline. Um, I've kind of, I feel like I've plugged this the past three weeks and I haven't gotten around to writing it, but I'm hoping to finally get the Leafs trade targets on the Blackhawks piece up this week. Um, that's all I really have to plug those two. Peter. I am working on 
something about oh wow i i'm already wow can i speak english um i am already working in the process of working on a piece about a 2023 prospect oh i love it i love it prospect talk we're getting into i, that, I that think season. i think you guys know where i'm going with this and how he's already probably running away with the number one title beautiful beautiful I well, can't we look, imagine who you're possibly talking no, about, no. Peter. I look forward to this piece soon so I can all be able to sleep. <laughs> I, uh, to be honest, I think I already have my top three already set right now for, for the next year's draft. Obviously, okay. it's still too so early, since but we the know top the, three. Since we know the first two, can I just try and guess the third one? Go ahead. Adam Fantilli? Bingo. Yeah. Here we go, baby. Yeah. Good shit. I was, I, I, you, you can't have anybody else there. You can't, not even Dalibor Dvorsky, not even as much as I love Callum Ritchie, um, Quentin Musty. Those three are already set, in my view. Well, there you have it, everyone. Uh, lots of great content coming out at the Hockey Writers, especially from us here at Sticks in the Six. As always, thank you all for joining us for episode 71 of the podcast. Shout out to Ryan Zeus Fleming for our intro. And you can follow Peter on Twitter at P Barracchini. You can follow Alex at A Hobson Media. Or you can follow myself at Andrew G. Forbes. Uh, you can follow the podcast at Sticks in the Six Pod. That's S T I X I N T H E 6 I X P O D. Head over to Spotify, iTunes, wherever you download our, the podcast your podcast our podcast uh <laughs> check us out on iHeartRadio now as well uh lots of great content wherever you look um you can hit us up on youtube for lots of great content as well hit subscribe make sure you hit it on all those platforms across the board uh give us a little bit more of a uh, push in terms of trying to top our fellow leaf podcasts otherwise thanks again for joining us review check out our content and uh, we'll see you again next week for episode 72 of the podcast